Hello everyone, I'm Katrina Wersencraft, I'm the Science Communications Intern at NASA Ames and today I'm joined by astrobiologist Mary Beth Wilhelm who is a research space scientist. Let's just start off, first of all would you like to introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about what it is that you do? So my name is Mary Beth Wilhelm, I'm a planetary scientist and astrobiologist at NASA Ames. So my research is kind of where organic chemistry meets geology. And I'm studying on Earth how um, the remains, like the molecular remains of life, get preserved in the rock record. And then I'm also, you know, thinking about how to design and build instruments to replicate some of the processes that we use in lab to look for those signatures on other planets. So kind of like have two hats, two main hats right now at NASA. Did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist or was there ever a time you thought you wanted to do something else? Yeah, since I was six years old, uh, my very first like science fair project was about uh, planetary science, actually. Really? Yeah, so like, I don't know, I've just always really loved it and my parents fostered it growing up and it you know, wasn't a phase or it wasn't a phase that I grew out of, at least not yet. <laughs> so I, I started at NASA when I was actually in high school uh, I went to high school close to base and one of like a, a friend of a friend got me an internship and then just never left. <laughs> That's cool. So what keeps you motivated then? What makes you want to stay at NASA? So I think that um, the type of work we do, it's like very niche and detail oriented, but I think it has the potential to like, if we're successful, to like affect a lot of people's viewpoints of, of our place in the solar system and in the cosmos in general. So I think it like, I, I love that like inspiring part of it. And then like on the more technical end, I think that it's, it's like fun to be a scientist. You get to just like explore and discover as part of your job description. And like, even on our like hardest days, <laughs> you know, we're still get to do really cool stuff. Did you have a teacher that inspired you when you were younger or did you know any scientists? I didn't know any scientists. I think I'm like the only one in my family, but I had a lot of teachers that pushed me. I think probably starting with my, my fourth grade teacher, she would always give me like extra homework assignments and, and some of those were to like look at the stars and kind of was the first time I really like, you know, looked at a star chart and tried to like understand what it meant. And then it kind of just like spun up from there. Um, I don't know, it's interesting. I think. In school, I actually enjoyed the humanities more than, than the science classes I took. I think I've maybe always been stronger in those than, than, than science and math. But I'm realizing now that like that's a super important skill to have as a scientist, like being able to communicate, uh, being able to write well, um, being able to see the big picture. You have to like balance all those things with the technical ability. Um, and I think that's, you know, been especially like the last couple of years uh, being out of my PhD and like having to like just write a bunch of proposals and papers like those skills are are skills I use every day. <laughs> and whereas I'm like only really getting into the lab every couple every, every you know, once a week if I'm lucky and pretty much not at all in the last year with COVID. <laughs> yeah, I can relate. <laughs> what, what research did you do for your PhD? What was your project? I worked on a lot of really cool stuff with my PhD. It took me a while to like settle out on my project. So I started out like doing, I like, kind of went into my PhD 
kind of following the the um, former student of my undergrad advisor, who was the guy like running the Mars rovers. Um, oh wow! And opportunity. And so I was like really getting into remote sensing of Mars and like spending a long time thinking about like, you know, where where certain minerals were located on Mars, what they meant for the geologic history. Um, and then like trying to figure out and understand and learn the tools to to be able to learn those more. So when I went into my PhD, I started doing that kind of thing. And then I also spent just a ton of time like just in the library, like reading papers and just kind of following my own research interests. I think that, you know, having that creative space and that time to just think and, and not have anybody tell you, like, these are the things that you should value kind of allowed me to start to, like, formulate my own ideas about what I thought was important. And then, uh, like, two years into my PhD, uh, I completely switched gears and then started going into, I took a bunch of biochemistry classes. I was, like, with all the pre-meds. It was so funny. <laughs> I had this amazing teacher who was like a, a biochemistry professor and he was an astrobiologist and that's who I learned biochemistry from. And I, th I just came up with my own set of like questions I wanted to pursue. And then I like cold called people. So I ended up, uh, my PhD research ended up being about the preservation of biomarkers in the very driest location on earth in the Atacama desert in Chile. Um, Sorry to interrupt. What are biomarkers? Like what kind of thing are you looking for? So biomarkers are um, just biological markers. They're the molecules that make up cells and living things. And there are certain types of biomarkers that get preserved better than others, which is kind of amazing. Like you can go into rocks that have been in the ground for millions to billions of years and you know pull them up, crush them up in the lab, and then actually extract some of those, those old remains. So it's sort of like forensics, but on like a geologic time scale. Nice. Which is it's just crazy. <laughs> you can learn about who was living there, what did they eat for breakfast, and <laughs> and then like uh, learn about some of the geological processes that degraded them. Yeah, so I like got to go to the Atacama a couple of times, and then um, I actually like I was at Georgia Tech doing my PhD, but they didn't have the right labs there. So for like the final three years of my PhD, I just lab hopped, and so I spent time at NASA's uh, Goddard Space Flight Center. And then kind of uh, did a little bit of research at the Smithsonian um, Natural History Museum, which was super fun. And then kind of got to this point where I was like running out of the resources I needed at Goddard. And so I went to the kind of world's expert in this stuff who's at MIT and I spent like six months in his lab. And then he, it was really funny because like I had started at Ames, I worked at Ames as an undergrad, then did all this other research in grad school. And then like towards the end of my PhD, um, I was working in this guy, Roger Summons' lab at MIT. And he was like, well, I don't know how to do this, but the world's expert in this is at Ames. <laughs> so it was like very full circle. And I ended up back at this um, biomarker lab at Ames run by Linda Janke, who's been a NASA employee since like 1961 or two. It was so cool to work with her and like learning from her, the depth of her knowledge and insight has been just like fabulous. Amazing. What is it that you research now? Are you kind of continuing in a similar vein or did you find other research interests that you wanted to explore? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm still, it's like starting to just accelerate now. Um, so like a lot of, when I was working in the Atacama and working with these, these samples, they're very challenging. The biomass concentration is so low. There's like only a few cells per gram, which is like, you know, four, three or four or five orders of magnitude lower. Than like the soil in your backyard. 
So we had to come up with all these crazy techniques to extract the, the remains out of these rocks. And then I realized like, well, you know, if this is this hard in the Atacama, it's going to be this hard on Mars. It's the same problem, except like Mars is three times, you know, three orders of magnitude drier than the Atacama, right? And yeah. so I started thinking about like, what are the types of tools and instruments that we would need? And then when I finished my PhD, I started proposing to work on them. So part of my work has been translating those things that have like sat in Linda Jenke's lab notebooks for the last 50 years to like a planetary scale instrument. And we're like in the early stages of building it now. Uh, I got a couple of like small grants at first. And then uh, two years ago, I won the big money and got two and a half million dollars to like start just like cranking on developing. And so we're coming up on the end of that project. Yesterday, we found out we got another project funded to like do an augmentation of it. So like, it just seems to be like, the momentum really just seems to be rolling now. And it's, it's been a cool experience because like I'm a scientist, but now like everybody I work with is an engineer um, or like a lot of people I work with are engineers and like kind of trying to merge those skill sets and capitalize on like both of our strengths to like create something that that could fly one day. We're still like super early in the development process. Um, you know, I'd say we're not super early. We're like midway through now. So now it's like trying to strategize about like how to level up to kind of like get the instrumentation matured so we can figure out how to fly it. But it is it is a game that I will probably take two or th two or three decades to figure out how to win. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, congratulations on your latest grant. Thanks. <laughs> so are you going to need people to like fly samples back to Earth to you or are you building something that you could send into space? Um, we're focusing mostly on like trying to build something that we could send to space. Cool. I think a lot of, so my senior engineering advisor, Tony Rico, who's just like an amazing person to work with. He's so brilliant and like so kind. He, for the last, you know, 15 years has flown these small sats and ISS payloads where they've um, been able to manipulate like small volumes of fluids and um, do like these mini biology and astrobiology experiments in space. So he's he's been really instrumental in like trying to kind of infuse those lessons learned from those technologies into into our instrument. And I think because of the work he's done and like the, what's come up in the industry in the last decade, what was what wasn't possible ten years ago is now possible. Like trying to build the lab and send the lab there instead of bring the sample back. I think that that balance is kind of with the advancement of technology is kind of going more in the favor of sending the thing there. But that's not, you know, not to say that like we still couldn't build instruments to analyze stuff back here. And we've certainly like been thinking about that too. But, you know, the time scale is a lot different. Sample returns really challenging. It's going to take a long time. It's going to be extremely expensive and they're only going to be able to return like 15 grams of material, which is like nothing. You know, when we do an analysis from rocks in the Atacama, we analyze 300 grams. So like if we can figure out how to replicate those analyses and do them actually on Mars, I think the results are going to be better just because we can kind of overcome the challenges with like low concentrations of biomass and, you know, heterogeneous distribution, like all these really common challenges to analyzing desert samples. <laughs> yeah, I'd read that about the Perseverance rover, like one of the biggest challenges is knowing where to collect samples from. You still, you, you still risk like not finding anything, which is crazy. Like, 
I think that's the hardest part of our field is just like, you know, if you don't see anything, like what have you learned? <laughs> if you see something, you know, life is there or not, but if you see nothing, then like, have you really learned anything? So I think that's like the hardest part of astrobiology, a null result. <laughs> are you hoping that you'll get some uh, samples from the current Mars mission or are you just kind of looking and seeing how that goes? <laughs> I think both. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I think that one of the more challenging things about being at NASA is, is the like constantly changing political environment and uh, proposal landscape and funding landscape. I mean, you just have to be super uh, adaptable and just never, never like cut off any opportunities. So you, you just like, you always kind of have to be like aware of everything going on all the time all the way from like local local politics to like national ones to like the funding landscape and how it changes because it changes quickly and often and the pendulum always swings back been at nasa for like 16 years now so i've seen i've seen it swing back and forth a couple times now so it's just like yeah and like things anything with space takes a long time to pull off so you just have to have to be patient and <laughs> yeah constantly analyzing <laughs> Well, fingers crossed that it swings your way. Yeah, eventually eventually it will. That's the game, right? <laughs> it has to. <laughs> I saw in the weekly highlights from Ames that you just won an award, the Ames Early Career Research Awards. How does that feel? That must be pretty cool. Yeah, that was super exciting. My boss and like some of my mentors put me up for it, which was really sweet of them. It was a nice surprise. I think like more than the award, like um, they had to write a letter, like letters, and just like seeing the letters, like it's that's a good feeling, <laughs> you know. It's like stuff that no one ever says to your face. <laughs> that was pretty cool. You seem pretty driven. Uh, you've been at NASA for a few years now. Are you like a long-term planner? Then do you have any big career goals? Um, you know, it's like I've been trying to figure out what those are because, like, I I only finished my PhD a couple years ago, and I think. Being in school for so long, like, like you, you have to live your life being like super long-term goal-oriented, and I've been taking a little like hiatus from that. <laughs> it's nice not to think about it. <laughs> yeah, and just enjoy, and just kind of like follow, follow the things that I feel passionate about because I think um, that's gonna like be more sustaining over long-term than like, you know, just following like what's trendy right now. But like that being said, yeah, like I, I would love to like PI, be a PI of like a Mars mission one day. And I've like started working on kind of planting the seeds for that. You know, like I'm still not qualified for like that type of role, but like there's no like guidebook on it. So I'm trying to like be open to like different types of opportunities and like grow that the grow the skill set that I think I'm going to need to be able to do that. Because it's like the technical part, you have to be excellent like in your scientific research. You have to have experience with, uh, you know, making hardware. So on the engineering side, which I don't have any like formal training in, and then you have to be, um, you know, a skilled project manager and know how to like handle and work with people. And like, man, they don't give you any training for that in science school. <laughs> like, it's not. So and then all the financial aspects of it. So I've been doing a lot of learning about like, you know, how government spending and procurement works. It's like not not exciting or interesting, but it's absolutely essential. It seems like a bit of a minefield. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you've got the space and the support to really research things that you're interested in. 
I know you're still classed as an early career researcher, even though you've already done so much. What would you say has been the highlight of your career so far? Oh man, uh, that's so hard. <laughs> um, I think probably the opportunity to go down to Antarctica and do research there. Cool. That was just an incredible experience. I spent two months camping in like the middle of this remote location in Antarctica with 12 dudes and a lot of Russians. <laughs> How cold was it? It was like a, like freezer cold, like minus 20. Oh. Yeah, you get used to it eventually. The first, the first week is like brutal, but then your metabolism kicks on, or at least mine did, and it's manageable. And if you have the right gear, um, and I mean, I had been like, you know, physically training for it too. Like, I don't think it's something you just kind of show up to. Like I had been like, doing these like excruciating workouts to try to like get my body used to turning over a lot of calories every day. Cause then when you get there, you burn just, a, you burn about 5,000 calories every day, just keeping warm. So it's like a kind of a shock to the system at first, but like, it's amazing how adaptable the body is. And like the cold, the cold is manageable. Like I would take a cold desert any, any day over a hot one. Cause like, I don't know, like nothing grows fast. Your body's like not swollen in any way. It's <laughs> just like, I don't know. Anyway, it was crazy. But I think the coolest part of that trip was like, there were locations that I went to that like no human has ever been to before. And that was just like such a surreal experience, like knowing that you were like maybe the first person ever to like walk on a particular location or like think about it and, and then try to understand it scientifically. So that was that was pretty cool. Oh, I can't even imagine. I'm still like getting over the 5,000 calories a day and freezing thing though. <laughs> How long did it take you to train then? How long were you leading up to this? Uh, I'd say maybe like four or five months of like ramping up the workouts and stuff. I, I mean, I think that was like the amount of, as soon as I found out I was going, that was when I started training. And then the other thing too is like they have, you eat only freeze dried food. So that was like kind of crazy. But then you, the trick I think is like you turn your body into a machine. So like you eat the same thing every day at the same time, you drink the same amount of water. Like, you know exactly how many times you're going to have to pee and like how much, how, how cold you're going to get at what time. So it becomes very predictable and like kind of more manageable in that way. And then, cause the thing is, is like when you're down there, you're not only like trying to like exist, but you're also trying to do science and like use your brain. So like you, you kind of have to like learn how to like turn off your body <laughs> or like those, like, you know, like, Hey, you're cold or Hey, you're uncomfortable feelings. Cause there's no showers. You can't do, and I didn't take a shower for like two months because you have to like transport your water in and out. And like, you have to be like really resource conscious. So, uh, yeah, like that was pretty crazy. Like I only had seven, seven pairs of clothing, like for two months time. So you kind of, anyway, but I, the, the, the guy who led the mission, his name is Dale Anderson. He's like a super experienced polar explorer and diver. He like was diving in this lake we were at. So like I learned a lot from his experience. He's a good teacher. <laughs> it's oh, all learned skills. That just sounds so incredible. What an amazing experience. If you ever get the chance, you should do it. <laughs> I highly doubt I will ever get the chance. <laughs> you never know. Um, it's getting like more and more affordable to get down there. And I think there's going to be like more and more opportunities, you know get down there before it all melts. <laughs> <laughs> That's I think point. that was the other really crazy part about it because like the places I do research are kind of like at the, in, you know, the climate extremes for the planet. So I've done research in the dry, the driest place on earth and one of the coldest and driest places on earth. And 
over the course of my research, just watching how the environment's like rapidly changing in response to climate change has been like kind of horrifying to see. When we were in Antarctica, they land these big military planes on ice runways. And when we left our field site at the end of our season, we were trying to fly out, but there were really, there was concerns that they wouldn't be able to land the plane because like the ice wasn't frozen. It was starting to go slushy. And like, they've had a base there. I went, I went down with the Russians. So the Russian, they've had a Russian base there for like 50 or 60 years and they've never had this problem before. So just like, you know, kind of seeing, seeing in real time, like what that looks like and like what that feels like in a place that's like 90% ice. That was like a really humbling experience. What would have happened if they couldn't land the plane? Would you have been stuck there for like the full season? They were, had talked about like, there was these smaller planes that don't need the runway. So they would have flown us to the South Pole, I think and then flown the planes there because we were closer to the coast. So there was like options, but I don't know. It's I think that's just like in the Antarctic. There's always planes in the Antarctic don't get along super well. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Yeah, you, your body must go through a lot with the extreme temperatures then if you're going to desert and <laughs> Antarctica. Like. Yeah, that, was, that year was crazy because I was in five continents in five months. In five months? Mm-hmm. That was crazy. That was like this. Was that the last year of my PhD? I think it was. Yeah, because I graduated. No, it was, yeah, it was, I was coming up on the last year of my PhD. I like had spent a month in Madrid doing some research at the Center for Astrobiology and then flew home for a little bit. Then I went to the Antarctic by way of South Africa. So that was kind of cool. And then came home and then I went to Chile after. <laughs> it was so crazy. Wow. I don't think I could do that anymore. I'm too old now. <laughs> You're not. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, I've been speaking to people who've been at NASA their entire lives and are still doing stuff like that, so... Maybe it's starting to rub off on me. <laughs> to be fair, you have been there a few years. Do you feel like one of the lifers now? I know. I don't know. It's a weird feeling, though. Is that a bad thing? I don't know if it's a bad thing. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Like, sometimes it feels like the time has flown. It's, yeah, I mean, I think I've, I've also, like, been lucky to have gone a lot of different places. And it, like, it's kind of enabled me to like go, you know, experience many things, like not only the field work, but working at different institutions. And I did my undergrad in New York and then my PhD in, in Georgia. So like, you know, and I got to spend some time at NASA headquarters and at NASA Johnson Space Center. So like, I've got to see a lot of like different pieces of the machine. Like, I don't feel like I'm just like stuck only at Ames. Ames has been like the thing that's like catalyzed everything else, which is cool. So... We'll see. We'll see where how things go. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Hard to predict these things. Sure. Is the Antarctic the f- like your favorite place that you've been? Um, I mean, it was certainly like the coolest. I think honestly, like my favorite place I've ever been is this place in southeastern Utah, which sounds crazy, <laughs> but like Utah is that part. There's this part of Utah where I went when I was like. 18 or 19 on one of my first field trips. And it's like this place where you have all the dinosaur bones preserved and this beautiful mountain range that it's called a pluton. So it's like magma comes up and then solidifies and then all the sedimentary stuff around it erodes and kind of reveals the mountain. And it was like the very first place ever that was ever described. Like a person like saw the mountain and understood like how it was formed. And like, there's a bunch of like Anasazi artifacts in that area and like these beautiful beds of like old seabeds just full of like fossilized shells and stuff. And so it just like had all these like classic textbook geology things where you could really like see the thing and understand the story of how it formed. 
and it's so beautiful. Like it's these, you know, beautiful, like red beds. It looks more, it looks more Martian than any place, even though it's probably the least analogous <laughs> scientifically. Um, but I think that place is my favorite of everywhere I've been so far. Awesome. Do you have any advice for people who would maybe want to get into your field? Yeah. Um, I just think the thing that I wish I had known when I had started is that there's no prescriptive way to do it. And there aren't any rules. Like people had told me a lot of like rules, but they were, they're all fake. <laughs> they're not, all of them are made up. There's no path that, I think there are paths that are easier and there's paths that are harder, but like, it's such a long haul that like, you know, if you can't keep yourself feeling good and happy about what you're doing, it's really impossible to have the longevity and sustain it. Cause I think that's how you, that's how you get into this field and, and maintain it. It's like, it's a lot of, a lot of years of school and a lot of, you know, for all the proposals I've won, there's been 10 that I lost, right? It's just about perseverance. I don't think that there's any magic to it. Like, it's just, it's just like putting in the time. I think also like um, kind of finding that group of people that you really connect with, like finding the people who share your passions and research interests and are also like decent and kind people. I think that, I wish I had like kind of known that. I think I, put, I tolerated and put up with a lot of people who maybe weren't worth that time because I thought that I needed needed to impress x or y to like get to the place I'm at but that was also a fiction the the best work I've done has come from working with people I got along really well with and then I think kind of my final piece of advice is just to like really spend time trying to figure out what 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 questions you're most interested in like spending a long time reading and in the library and reading like, you know, scientific literature, coming up with your own ideas, um, you know, formulating those things from, from your own mind instead of just like trying to like jump on whatever, you know, is going on right now. Because like those ideas you come up with will be more sustaining and might have like some really interesting potential discoveries in there. Um, so just like allowing that creative space, I think is really important as a scientist. I think, I think we're more like artists than we are like engineers. I hate to say it. <laughs> I work with a lot of engineers now. They'd probably kill me if I said that. <laughs> no, I, I like that. I think I probably agree as well. What's the one thing that you wish people knew about your work? Hmm. I think it's the coolest part is like when we're extracting this, like the stuff out of these rocks, like I think the oldest rocks I've worked with were about a billion years old the materials we're handling like actually came from a living organism that has not been alive for a billion years. Like that's crazy. Like that, like feeling of connection to like that original environment where there was like a little microbe and a little sea just hanging out and like little did he know, like <laughs> he was going to get squished into some salt and then buried and then stuck in that rock for a billion years just for somebody to come along and like pour some dichloromethane on top of him to like stick him into an analytical instrument. But I think it's just that connection, like, it's, like, such a cool feeling to, to like, know, like, know that we can learn about stuff that has been dead for so long by, like, studying the actual contents of what made them up. Like, that's, that's wild to me. I still, I still can't get over that, that part of it. <laughs> Before we finish up, is there anything that you'd like to share or anything that you think that I should have asked you that I haven't? I guess like I've been happy with like seeing how things at NASA have been starting to evolve and change. It's been exciting. This team that I put together for the extractor, um, the instrument project that I'm working on now, 
is like the youngest and most diverse team I've ever worked on at NASA. And that, that's that been like really cool. Like the diversity of ideas and seeing the enthusiasm and passion com coming out of that group has been like really inspiring to me. And like it kind of gives me hope because like, I you know, I think I think there are some things that like we can do better at NASA. And I think, you know, trying to create like a more like equitable and diverse workforce is like something that's really important and like really hard and challenging to do because we're like so steeped and seeped in these like old school academic mentalities. Like, you know, the PhD process has been around since the 1600s. Like that's what we're fighting is like some of these old rules that create certain types of people and curate have been curated by certain types of people. And we're just all sort of inheriting, you know, the problems and, and like solutions too of our, of our, of our advisors and our advisors advisors. So I, you know, have been trying to be really thoughtful thinking through all of those like sort of academic hazing rituals that have been done to me. Cause like, I don't want to perpetuate the things that don't make sense because I think that some of those things can be exclusionary but I found it challenging, I think, to convince the couple of generations above me that that's like a good thing to do because the system has so much momentum. So, you know, it's, it's tricky. It's like, I can see the things that are wrong, but I don't know if I really know how to fix them yet. And like, that's a really, I think that's a really scary prospect. And maybe it's just doing small moves every day and like, changing it like one student at a time. But I don't know, that's like been something that's been on my mind a lot lately. I think it's definitely an uphill struggle. And yeah, it's not a problem that one person can fix, but it's great that you're thinking about it and making the effort and being the PI everyone wishes that they had. I think that's where yeah. the real change comes. I think it's true. Like, especially it's like when you win the money, you get to, you, you have the power, right? You got, you have the, you have the creative control. So like we can, I can be more, if I'm more conscious about it, I think that's the weird thing about NASA too. Like it's hierarchical, but at the same time, there's a lot of power still in like the researcher or like the, the PI, um, since we're the ones writing the grants and pulling in the money and we are the, the money that from our overhead goes to pay for the rest of the organization. Right. So like, we actually do have more power than we think, I think, in that in that sense. And then I guess the other positive thing is like the types of conversations we're allowed to have now than like when I first started. A huge order of like order of magnitude difference just from like 2006 to now, I'd say. Like feel more comfortable like pointing out things that are uncomfortable or having harder discussions. And like I think that's gonna help to start to change things too. Cause if you can't even talk about it, like how the heck are you gonna change it? Sure. Even if you like are met with resistance. So I think that's, that's been like at least one positive. And I see the minds of the people that I've talked to about certain issues start to kind of process things. It's taken a couple of years or maybe it's just because I have the, the PhD behind me now. And like, I have my, my, like my job and they, they can't fire. Well, I mean, they could fire me, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it's like getting into a position where I can, I can say things without fear of as much like retribution. You have influence now. I don't know if I don't know if it's quite at the influence level yet, but <laughs> it's aspirational influence. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It's very it's a very monolithic system.
the government. <laughs> yeah. It's been interesting, like obviously I've just been doing an internship at one centre and it's been really short, but just seeing all the sort of bureaucracy and how there's all these interconnected wheels and yeah, change in organisations of that size are always going to be slow. So it's great that you've seen progress even just in the last, what, like 10 years. Yeah, I think also since like Me Too as well, kind of just bringing that vernacular into like the conversation. Because like, you know, like my boss, she's been at NASA for like 52 years. Like the types of problems she faced are different in some ways, but still similar to the ones that I face. Um, So like learning from her, her experiences and then like just, I don't know, maybe it's just like each generation tries to chip away at the same, same problems. But I don't know. I I don't know. (laughs) We'll see. Like I, my students coming up now have such different perspectives than I do. And like, that's a weird feeling too. It's just like, I'm just already starting to see like a generational difference between me and like the next one coming up. And like, it's like, oh boy, <laughs> that's, that's crazy. That's super interesting though, because I'm doing a PhD just now. So I work in a university and there are certain things that my supervisor will say, like this hasn't changed at all. Like since she was doing her PhD, things feel like they're moving really slowly in some ways but then I guess in other ways there is movement I don't know it's it's really hard to judge when you're in the moment yeah I like how long was your PhD because the American system's super different from what it is here uh it was it was five years okay. but I didn't have like a master's going into it I was just like straight shotted through because I knew that I needed it and like everyone had told me like oh it's just a piece of paper just get it done so I just hit the gas, you know, I don't know if that's, I think I hit the average for my program. So I'm just like thankful for that. Happy to be average. (laughs) (laughs) How about you? How long have you been in it now? uh, So I'm going into my, uh, going into, I'm in my final year. Yay. I don't, I don't think I'm going to stay in academia. Like there's a lot of things that I see that drive me crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I'm really torn though, right? I want to do what you're doing and, like, be the change. But I also don't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's, I don't, I I mean, I'm I'm telling you a story now, but it's also just, like, the day-to-day can still be very difficult. (laughs) I think we all just have to figure out, like, where we fit into the puzzle. Because, like, eventually, eventually you find your little niche and then that's, that's where you have, like, your most power to do things. So I don't know if it's not academia, that's like certainly okay. I think that's part of the myth too, that they sure. tell us like, this is the old, this is the only meaningful thing that's worth doing is being in academia. And it's just like, it's not true. Like It's just not true. So are you, are you still in the UK right now? I am. I was supposed to be doing it in person and obviously the pandemic happens. So I'm just in my living room now. <laughs> um yeah we just got this like beautiful new lab that they finished in february of 2020 (laughs) oh perfect timing the first new lab in 50 years have you been in it at all a little bit we got it back for a few weeks in november and then we just got back like three weeks ago so uh you know i like it's just so lovely like it's like having like a modern hvac system and like windows it's so it's like life-changing because, like, you know, you have this picture in your mind of what NASA looks like, 
But keep in mind that everything was built in the 50s when they had just in 60s when they had screaming money. So it's just like concrete blocks, like 60s chic technology and fashion, like (laughs) asbestos paint, like (laughs) the whole thing, the whole thing. So like all of that infrastructure is really aging. And I think like 80 percent of like NASA's infrastructure is like over its lifetime. So it should be replaced. So it's just all super run down. So they've been slowly trying to like build pieces of new things, but you know, it's hard to get that money to like build things when you're like trying to just do the research. And I think I got really lucky in terms of timing because like they finished the lab just as I was sort of ramping into my own career. So I get to like be in a nice space with like nice people. It's like, I don't know, windows. (laughs) (laughs) The dream. No basement labs. (laughs) Yeah, I've worked in a lot of basements. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. Thank you for... No, not at all. I'm just glad I got the chance to speak to you. And yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much.